the real value for any of these privately held businesses is often a function of um, how well they as uh, sellers of the business are able to bring an engaged audience of credible buyers to the, to the sort of bargaining table. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me today, I'm excited to have Peter Lerman. Peter, how are you doing today? Good to be with you, Todd. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you joining me. And uh, a little bit about Peter. He's the CEO and founder of Axial, an online platform that enables private companies and their trusted advisors to confidently raise capital, pursue acquisitions, and exit their businesses. Prior to Axial, Peter worked for the investment firm SFW Capital Partners. And uh, before that at uh, CLG, where he helped build the company's global technology platform for on-demand business expertise. Uh, And then uh, you're in New York. You got your uh, family there and, and, uh, you know, hanging out there and and got this company. So let's talk about this company. Let's talk about your background and kind of your focus and, and what you're doing. That sounds great. Should I jump in? Absolutely. All right. Well, um, so about 11 years ago, I finished graduate school um, and it was in graduate school that I was working for SFW Capital Partners. They are a a company that they're an investment firm. They invest in privately held companies worth usually somewhere between 10 and 100 million dollars in value. So businesses with usually anywhere between sort of, you know, five and 55 and 75 million dollars in annual sales. And um, as part of my time working with them, uh, I just realized uh, how problematic it was for them to find uh, business opportunities uh, in the small sort of privately held uh, corner of the economy. So just finding businesses that, that are for sale is, is a very hard, very time intensive thing to do. Um, and in the course of finding these businesses and, and searching for these businesses, um, I became just much, much um, more acquainted with the way these businesses are run and the way that uh, the businesses are led and the issues associated with that that make it much harder for these businesses to be sold um, when, when there's an opportunity for them to be sold or, or when the owner or the family or the founders have decided that they, they want to exit the business. Usually these businesses have neglected a whole bunch of uh, of work associated with running the business. Um, and it makes it very hard for the business to actually be sale ready. Um, even if they've got great products, great customers, lots of profitability, there's lots of other things that go into being sale ready. And, um, and so instead of, um, to make a long story short, instead of going and working full time at this, uh, investment firm, uh, which is a great firm with great people, I, um, decided to start Axial instead, um, hoping that Axial could be a platform that transformed the way small businesses uh, prepare themselves for an exit, uh, making sure that they've got the education they need, uh, the tools they need, and, and ultimately the partners that they need in order to, uh, in order to not just get an exit done, but, but hopefully get an exit done on their terms and at a price that's a fair and reasonable price. Um, as opposed to what you hear about all the time, which is sort of 
you know, worst nightmare ever trying to, to sell your business. Um, so I started the business about 11 years ago. Uh, we're based in New York City. Uh, I've got about 30 employees at the company uh, on my team um, and uh, having a great time still and, and really enjoying uh, trying to uh, change the way these businesses are financed and sold. So, so the platform, um, companies can list their businesses for sale? Yeah. So the way the platform works, it's, it's actually interesting. I know that um, there's a lot of real estate uh, operators and, and investors uh, that, that listen into Pillars of Wealth. Our, um, what, what we found and what I knew before even starting the company was that the listing model that is used for residential real estate and also for a lot of commercial real estate would probably be sort of DOA for privately held companies. Um, mm. And the reason is uh, a tremendous amount of sensitivity to privacy. Um, so when, when a, a family owned business or a founder owned business with a bunch of employees decides that they want to sell the company, it's not just a highly sensitive decision. And so the listings design or the listings model that's used, um, we actually uh, decided not to build the Axial platform with a listings framework. The way that it works is, is simple. Everything starts out completely private and confidential to the seller. And the seller goes into the platform and they upload a bunch of data and information on their business in total secrecy, total privacy. And as they add more and more data to their little private uh, portal inside the platform, uh, the Axial software platform begins to give them tools, uh, data, and information on uh, how attractive is their business, what's the likelihood that it could sell, who are the types of buyers who might be interested in buying the business, uh, who are potential M&A advisors or brokers that they might want to um, consider hiring to help them with the transaction process. And they're getting all of this information. It's kind of like if you go to kayak.com, you're thinking about flying from New York to Los Angeles. You get a huge amount of information before, you, you know, before you're making any buying decision, right? You, know, you get to see which flights and which are nonstop and what do they cost. So we tried to sort of create this private little uh, interface for the business owner that gives them all this information on who they might be able to sell to, how long it might take. Um, and then they can decide whether or not they want to take the next step, right? Whether they want to begin engaging in conversations with any of those partners um, and do it on a private one-to-one uh, -one basis. So there's a little bit of uh, a messaging tool inside the platform and it allows you to send a private message, you know, just like you would on LinkedIn or, you know, other online platforms, you can send a private message to someone and say, hey, I'm working on the following transaction, uh, interested in exploring it. Uh, it looks like you're, interest and in your criteria is a fit and a match for the kind of business that I've been running. Um, you know, here's some basic information and here's an NDA if you'd like to discuss further. So that's kind of how the process uh, starts out. It's all driven by the seller and the seller is able to decide when they want to invite uh, a dialogue with, you know, potential partners to, to discuss the transaction. Interesting. And that basically just happens sort of over and over and over again. Um, not only do business owners use the platform, but a lot of brokers and investment bankers also use the platform and they use it uh, on behalf of their clients. So uh, just like brokers in the real estate market who represent properties that are for sale or for rent, there are brokers that represent businesses that are for sale right. um, in, in, uh, in the business for sale marketplace. 
Uh, and we have developed a lot of partnerships with a lot of these brokers who use our tools in order to better serve and meet the needs of, of their clients who have hired them to, to sell their business. Uh, so we work with the owners, but we also uh, play nice with uh, with the brokers and the investment bankers and the intermediaries that are in the market. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um, you know, with, with real estate, it's, I mean, fairly easy to value it. Um, appraise, you know, we can comp it. We yeah. can, you know, base it on financials. Well, how do you, uh, you know, how do you value different types of businesses? And I, I'm assuming there's different categories, like a technology business would sell for a different basis than maybe a manufacturing business. Is that, yeah. is that correct? And yeah. how do you, how do you begin valuing these businesses as somebody that's looking into it? Quite frankly, I'm looking into, um, would it make sense to buy some businesses, uh, especially as we go through this, um, kind of recession here that we're we're currently in. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, I don't know, uh, nearly as much about real estate valuation as I do about business valuation. The, the, the short answer is, um, you know, it's, um, you know, there's, there's kind of two answers to the question regarding value. The, the, the academic answer to the value of a business is, is that, you know, any business, the value of any business today is equal to the uh, the present value of all the profits that that business business is going to generate in the future, right? So, if a business is going to generate a million dollars in profit after you know after taxes this year, and it's going to generate a million next year and a million next year, and you just ran that out all the way in perpetuity, you, there's actually an academic equation that will give you an answer for what the value of that business is today. Uh, based upon, you know, some assumptions about riskiness and, you know, how predictable that cash flow is. The truth is that um, while that might be the academic answer, the, the real value for any of these privately held businesses is often a function of um, how well they as uh, sellers of the business are able to bring an engaged audience of credible buyers to the, to the sort of bargaining table. So um, if you, as a seller of a business, let's say the business has 10 million in sales and a million of, uh, of pre-tax profit. Um, and it's a manufacturing business. It's based in America. It's got decent, you know, to good customers and a reasonable team of, of people managing the business typically those businesses uh, would sell for somewhere between four and six times the cash that the business is generating typically. Um, so four to 6 million in this case. Yeah. In, in that case, right. You know, that's sort of a range for a, a sort of small privately held manufacturing, you know, pro profitable privately held manufacturing concern sort of somewhere between probably four and six times uh, a multiple of uh, the firm's annual pre-tax profit. Um, but there's a huge difference between selling your business for $4 million or $6 million. There's a huge, yeah. there's a huge difference. There's, yeah. you know, transformational difference. Right. Um, and so one of the things that actually really ultimately matters at the end of the day is can these business owners assemble a credible, uh, sufficiently well-capitalized audience of buyers to compete, to, to buy the business. Right. Um, 
when you sell, you know, if you own stock in Apple or Google or 3M, you know, every day the stock market opens and there's thousands and thousands of buyers that are willing to buy your stock at basically the same price, you know, that the market is trading at that day, right? Um, so you have a ready and willing and deep pool of buyers ready to buy 100 shares of Google or 1,000 shares of Exxon. It's, it's not it's not like that when you're selling a privately held business, a small privately held concern. So one of the biggest drivers of valuation and valuation success for business owners is do they have a plan by which to get the, a, a really meaningful number of credible buyers to the table yeah. more or less all at the same time. And what you find is, and for those, you know, who are, you know, in the real estate business as well, you know, if, if you're selling your house and you know it's been on the market for 60 days and someone comes along and you know says you know how about a half a million dollars and your asking price is is six hundred thousand uh, dollars you know you don't you don't really have too much of a leg to stand on right you've got an offer there's nothing there's nothing else cooking you kind of have to either sit and wait and and maybe you know never get another bite or have to wait another 60 days or or, or take it if you can get just one more bid on that property at more or less the same time that the other buyer is offering you a half a million dollars, you can start to really create a little bit of an auction dynamic and create some auction pressure. Um, it's the same thing in the world of buying and selling privately held businesses. The difference between having one potential buyer at the table and two is it's enormous, you know, it's an enormous difference. To go from two to three is even better. Um, and so what you see a lot of business owners and a lot of good professional advisors do is they really, you know, before they sell their business, they really try and get their ducks in a row on this issue. Um, because the, the range of value for a business while there's only one ac academic value for a business, the, the truth of the matter is that when you're selling a privately held business, the value of that business is what anybody's willing to pay for it at, at that point in time. And if you don't know how to gather that audience together, if you don't know how to make sure that audience is aware that your business is for sale, if you don't know how to put together a story as to why that's an attractive business for them to buy and to operate, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the academic valuation of the business is. You don't have a ready list of, of bidders uh, ready to, uh, to transact with you uh, in the market. So the process by which you sell is totally critical. Uh, and I'm sure that's true in, in professional real estate as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Creating that buzz around the business and creating some excitement. Uh, same thing with the property. I mean, if you, you know, marketing it to rent or marketing it to sell, you, you've got to create a story. You've got to create some excitement. Uh, we, we raise private capital for our apartment buildings and you're not going to raise any private capital if you don't create excitement or buzz around, around the property and around the story of what you're going to do with the property. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned a $10 million manufacturing business, you know, selling for four to six times, you know, the, the profits of the business on the completely other end of the spectrum. Um, and I think most, you know, most of your listeners are well aware of this brand. Instagram had 20 employees, uh, not a, not a red cent of revenue. Um, and the business was bought by Facebook for a billion dollars. Right. And at the time, uh, a bunch of people said, you know, this is just totally crazy, right? Like, you know, he's completely overpaying. 
It's the stupidest acquisition I could possibly imagine. The company has no revenue. It's got 20 employees. You know, uh, what's he thinking? Well, it turns out that sharing photos was one of the most mission critical activities that everybody did on Facebook, right? And, uh, and Instagram was becoming the default photo sharing, you know, sort of social media application on the internet. Um, it had an incredible amount of mobile phone momentum. Um, and fast forward, I don't know, five, six years, you know, that is a huge revenue generating business for Facebook, right? It's in many ways, the growth engine that's powering the top line of, of Facebook beyond just the core facebook.com application. No. And so that's what kind of connects, you know, that's a perfect example of storytelling, right? Um, you know, and the ability for the acquirer to see a narrative in the future and say, okay, this isn't generating any revenue right now, but if I take my, all of my Facebook advertisers and I plug it into the Instagram machine and this business continues to grow from 10 or 20 million users to hundreds of millions of users, all of that revenue in the future, um, is today in my estimation, worth roughly a billion dollars today, right? And that's, that's ultimately the calculation that, you know, that the brass at Facebook was making. Um, and so, uh, you know, what sometimes looks totally crazy on the surface, particularly in the world of, you know, technology and startup valuations, uh, sometimes, you know, you fast forward two, three, four, five years, and, and all of a sudden you realize, um, how powerful the uh, the acquisition was, and and frankly, what a bargain it was. Uh, even though at the time, to the casual observer, it, it looked like the craziest valuation right. uh, in history. <laughs> right. I remember a lot of people talking how stupid that was. It, it didn't make you know Instagram was losing money. Uh, yeah, Facebook decided to pay them that much. Would you say a billion dollars or wrong? Yeah, it was a billion. It was a billion dollar uh, billion dollars even, if I'm not mistaken. And it's just, it's wild to think, but by making that acquisition, they changed their, their, or grew, totally grew their business and acquired a platform that look at it today. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the other things that really drives the value of a business up is when an acquirer is anxious about what your business could do if they don't acquire it, right? So in, in, in that case, Mark Zuckerberg was probably really nervous that Instagram would unseat Facebook as the primary photo sharing application on the internet for, for social media you know, users, right? Yeah. And that that would really sort of, that would wound Facebook very materially. So I think at the time, Facebook was probably worth like $100 billion. So for him to, for him to, buy Instagram for 1% of the value, the current value of Facebook, it's, you know, kind of like, you yeah. know, a kind of a drop in the ocean and a very, very good way for him to protect against the risk that Instagram would one day, you know, disrupt the, the Facebook empire. Uh, so that's another reason why acquirers will pay you in certain situations, they'll pay you a huge number. They're afraid that you're either going to be acquired by their number one competitor or they're afraid that you could disrupt and unseat them if you gather a, a head of steam 
And it's all those kinds of storytelling and narratives that are really, really mission critical um, to, uh, to selling businesses. And, and that's where you can, you know, you can sort of completely defy the academic valuation framework and, uh, and drive an incredible outcome for, for your business. Yeah. Yeah. That, that talk about disrupting the academic. I mean, that didn't sell for four to six times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So uh, somebody looking at buying businesses, you know, for me, I'm personally looking at uh, potentially doing it, looking at how do I vertically integrate uh, and that acquiring businesses might make a lot of sense. Um, You know, how can you grow your business? How can you just grow um, through acquiring? Why does that make a lot of sense versus just starting from scratch? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, uh, the truth is that sometimes it does make a lot of sense, and so sometimes it makes no sense at all. I think the, the some of the the reasons why, you know, if you, you know, if you have an existing business, right, an existing manufacturing business, or you have, let's just take a, a simple example, right? I mean, these are just e- easy anecdotes. They're they're oversimplified, but they're illustrative. Let's say you're Coca Cola. And for 50 years, you've been producing Coca-Cola and everybody loves it. And, um, you know, you have all of these relationships with all of these distributors and all these trucks and all of these bottlers. Um, And you want to keep on growing Coca-Cola and, you know, everybody's drinking one or two Cokes a day already. So you can't necessarily grow by getting people to have a third or a fourth Coca-Cola um but the beverage market has you know uh you know uh, bottled water is is becoming more and more of a thing people are drinking more and more and more bottled water so you look at you know the bottled water companies that are out there and you say okay these are independent bottled water companies they have none of coca-cola's distribution power they have none of the relationships that we have in all these cities all around the country. Maybe it's a great bottler with good relationships in America, but it has no international distribution, right? For Coca-Cola, they can approach that business and they can say, we'll acquire you for, you know, X amount of money, right? And once we've acquired you, you know, we can take your brand and we can take your products and we can relatively easily integrate them into all of our pre-existing distribution. So you've been selling water all over America. You've got a great product. You've got a great brand. We will take it, you know, international and we can do it overnight versus you as an independent, you know, bottled water brand, building out all that infrastructure, building out all that distribution and kind of competing with us um, as you try and go abroad. So what that does is it, it gives Coca-Cola an ability to keep growing their top line through acquisition. Uh, usually if they make that acquisition, there's probably certain functions and certain expenses in the bottled water company that they no longer need to, to, to re- retain. Right. So yeah. at Coca-Cola, they've got a finance department already, right. They've got an HR department already, right. They've got an IT department, right. That handles IT and email and, you know, uh, they've got somebody who handles facilities, right? So all of the expenses that that independent, you know, brand needed to carry in order to run a fully, you know, a fully operational business, 
many of those expenses can be removed by Coca-Cola upon the integration of the acquisition. Um, and that whole area, um, you know, of, of uh, that whole sort of set of categories um, where you can either save money or where you can increase revenue, those are, you know, referred to in the trade as synergies, either cost synergies or revenue synergies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is, you know, that the, the, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Um, the devil is always in the details on this stuff, Todd. I cannot tell you the number of, um, you know, failed acquisitions that were based upon a whole bunch of synergies that ended up going wildly off the rails uh, for either complicated reasons or the most simple and straightforward of reasons. But frankly, one of the reasons why acquisitions go off the rails the most is just the personalities in the room, you know, just the culture, the personalities, the ego. You have a CEO of a, you know, independent bottled water brand. It's a hot brand, you know, and he or she's been, you know, riding high, building the business. Now, all of a sudden, you know, they're part of the Coca-Cola, you know, empire. And, you know, uh, they just, they, you know, don't want to listen. They misbehave. They, they want to run the show, Coca-Cola. And, you know, they just didn't get those, you know, they didn't cross those T's and dot those I's prior to the transaction. And all of a sudden you have just a whole bunch of sort of organizational dysfunction disrupting uh, all of those opportunities. But those are the reasons why people make acquisitions, right? Is uh, they see opportunities to, to streamline the cost structure and to extend the, the top line through um, customer growth or territory growth or geographic growth. Does it make sense for somebody who doesn't have a business? Let's just say I, I wanted to buy a manufacturing business. I don't have a manufacturing business. I, um, does it make sense for somebody like me that doesn't have a manufacturing business to go in and buy a manufacturing business? And if the answer is yes, then like, what, what's the first even step like process? What, what do people want to be yeah. doing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you've never been around manufacturing in your life, uh, odds are the answer is, is, is probably not, but, but I think, you know, anybody who's had a career in some field, right, whether it's manufacturing, right, they were a GM of a plant, or they were, you know, um, you know, they worked uh, for a software company out of college, or, you know, usually, you know, your first five to 10 years of professional life give you exposure to some industry, right, real estate, manufacturing, technology. And I think, once you have that exposure to that, you know, to that market and and to the nuances of that specific niche within that market, you know, the idea of potentially going out and finding a business to buy and to try and develop that business actually becomes a more reasonable idea, you know, a more sensible idea. And uh, there's a lot of ways to, to think about, you know, go, you know, sort of doing that. But one, you know, one approach is, um, you know, putting your own capital into the transaction in order to, in order to buy the business. Usually if you're going to buy a business, you're going to finance the the purchase of the business similarly to the way you would finance the purchase of a home. So you would put some equity in, but you would also need some debt, right? And so you can get the debt in, you know, uh, more or less one of two places. You can get it from either a bank or some type of bank, which provides the loan and which will collateralize the loan against some some form of assets. Um, 
And the other place where you can very often when you're buying a small business get the debt is actually from the seller, right? Which is called a seller note um, in which the seller essentially extends financing and says, you know, you'll pay me back according to the following schedule and you'll only pay me X amount at closing. Um, and so uh, there's actually, interestingly, Todd, there's this whole breed of, of owner operators and entrepreneurs that have started these um, vehicles called search funds, like, like searching for a business called a search fund. Um, and there's this uh, group of search fund investors um, which are in the business of giving search fund operators uh, about $25,000 at a time. Uh, the search fund operator raises about a half a million dollars and searches for a business for about up to two years. And the investors who gave that sort of $25,000 increment up front then get uh, essentially preferred uh, ownership and, and rights of first refusal on the ultimate business that has been discovered for, for purchase. Hmm. And the search fund operator then owns a very significant amount of equity upside and then begins to pay themselves either as the chairman or the incoming CEO of the business. And it's become, it, it kind of got pioneered actually at Stanford University in their, in their business school program, the Stanford Business School. But now it's kind of happening all over the place. There's business school graduates doing it. And there are people that never went to business school, but that, you know, have, uh, you know, had 10, 15, 20 years, you know, inside industries and inside businesses that are informally raising uh, what effectively is a search fund, which is a modest amount of capital that finances your ability to search for a business over a 12 to 24 month period and you hunt for businesses and you can use platforms like Axial to hunt for businesses. There are other tools you can use. You can tap your local network. You can, you know, go to the local, you know, real estate brokers, the local wealth managers, lawyers, and try and figure out, are there any businesses that, you know, where the owner of the business is looking to retire and wants to transition the business and, and you can put yourself in a position to potentially become the, uh, you know, the acquirer of the business. And um, some of these searches pan out and some of them don't. Um, the most famous of all of these is a company called Assurian. Um, Assurian is now like a huge provider of um, insurance to like washer dryer products and handsets and cell phones. You go on Amazon and you buy a piece of consumer electronics, you'll see an opportunity to buy like a one year or a two year warranty to ensure that that consumer electronic Sure. Usually that's this company, Assurian. If you can believe it, you go look up Assurian, you'll see it was one of the first uh, search fund uh, opportunities out of Stanford. And I think the investors who invested in Assurian made like, you know, three, four, 500 times their money. I mean, it's just it's one of these just extraordinary wow. stories. Um, so, you know, uh, the idea of, you know, sort of leaving the corporate grind and going and finding a business to buy and operate yourself is kind of becoming more and more it's still on the fringes, but it's actually really becoming more and more of a, uh, a bit more of a mainstream uh, career path that a lot of, you know, people in their late 20s, 30s and 40s, uh, and even beyond are, are, are exploring and considering seriously. Yeah, and well, and, and this entrepreneurship has become more and more popular, I feel like that type of stuff, you know, you, whether it's a startup or buying an existing business is 
becoming more and more popular, more accepted. Yeah. And, 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 you know, also the internet makes all this a lot easier because you can go on the yeah. Google right now and punch in search fund and you'll start seeing a whole bunch of, you know, white papers and resources and, yeah. you, you know, you can just sit there and print it all out. And, you know, if you've got, you know, if you're holding down a steady job, you just, you know, research this over three to six months and, you know, you can just learn about it without having to jump in the deep end the next day. You can sort of take your time and get familiar with all of this because the internet has made so much of this information available to, you know, anybody who's uh, got a computer or a mobile phone. Yeah, crazy, crazy. Um, so I got a couple last questions for you before we wrap up. A lot of good information so far. Um, what's a, what's a, the biggest mistake you've made uh, in your business and your journey here and how have you learned from it? Well, let's see. I think um, I'd have to say uh, I made a, um, I raised some money um, and I was in the process of raising some money in 2014 for Axial. Uh, the business was doing pretty nicely. Business was growing quite fast. And I decided I wanted to raise some uh, outside capital for the business. And I think the big mistake that, that I made is a very straightforward, uh, understandable mistake, but nonetheless, totally unacceptable. Um, uh, we, uh, my CFO and I just did not nail down exactly the right um, uh, revenue recognition formula for the business. Uh, so one of the ways that Axial generates revenue is by collecting subscriptions from its customers who use Axial. We also allow our customers to pay a contingent fee instead of a subscription. But on the subscriptions, you need to be recognizing that revenue in an appropriate and accurate way. If you don't do that, you can either inflate or deflate your, um, your actual uh, gap revenue, like the, the sort of generally accepted accounting principles associated with how do you, how do you recognize subscription-based revenue? Yeah. And we just, it was, it was an honest mistake. We got the formulas wrong. And I think we presented that the business was going to generate 10 million in sales that year. And uh, the business was probably only going to generate about 8 million or eight and a half million that year. Um, and we um, we got into a dialogue with a fantastic investor, a great investment firm. And as they started to dig into the financial models that we produced and, you know, how we were recognizing the revenue, they said, guys, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, you're recognizing this revenue incorrectly. And, you know, it's not a $10 million business this year. It's probably an eight, eight and a half million dollar businesses. And it ended up being an $8 million year for us. He was, he was exactly right. At that point, uh, we were already under uh, a a letter of intent, you know, with ex exclusivity uh, for him to to do this diligence on the business. And he said, listen, you know, I just, in, in light of, you know, discovering this mistake, I just, I don't think that we can proceed with, you know, the transaction. Um, and, you know, if your business is generating a lot of profits, that's not, that's not necessarily the end of the world, but at the time Axial was losing money. I was investing all of our revenue and more to try and build the business and build it more quickly and, and, and build a, and establish um, 
you know, just a really strong foundation. And, uh, and so I really put the business at, at risk, uh, because, you know, the deal broke and I only had, you know, I think I only had like 90 days of runway left. (laughs) Um, and, uh, anyway, I mean, all's well that ends well. Um, I was able to dust myself off. We rebuilt, uh, everything from scratch, rebuilt the financial models, you know, got our T's crossed and our I's dotted and I've never made the mistake again. Um, but it was an embarrassing mistake. Um, for me, it was a real black mark for me, a black eye for me. I felt embarrassed. I felt, um, incompetent and, uh, and I was, uh, it was, it was a, it was a really incompetent mistake and it it cost me, uh, a deal and it almost cost the, the, the life of the business. Um, so one of the things we haven't talked a lot about Todd, but one of the things that really will kill a deal is, you know, is when an investor really digs in and begins to see significant, um, just, you know, poor record keeping, you know, inaccurate financial statements. And it doesn't matter whether they were done, um, you know, honestly and innocently or not. It just, it just kills the trust in the deal. It undermines all of its momentum. And, um, so I think one of the things that I always try and preach when I speak with business owners and, and give, you know, workshops is just, you have to invest some of your profits in your, your financial readiness, you know, your bookkeeping, your record keeping. If you can get your businesses to in, uh, withstand an annual audit, um, that's a great way to get a third party audit of your firm. So we started auditing Axial immediately after that. So I definitely learned that mistake the hard way, licked my wounds, dusted myself off and, and was able to, to turn things around. But that would have been a mistake I could have easily uh, and would have preferred to have learned the easy way. And, and unfortunately, uh, I didn't. So for those of your listeners that, that are still listening, I, I, hope they, <laughs> I hope they take advantage of my mistake there. That was a big one. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, we, I'm killing a deal um, because of that. I mean, the, the seller keeps selling, sending these financial statements to us and they contradict with each other. They don't match up. And so whether he's being honest or and just making mistakes or whether he's trying to push pull something on us, I, I can't tell. But it's just a deal where I look at that and I just go, I, I can't continue to go forward with it. Nothing, nothing makes sense here. So knowing your financials and, and not even knowing them, but, uh, you know, like you made just a couple small maybe mistakes with that and it kind of blew that whole deal up. And I, and I appreciate you being uh, open and honest with us because that's definitely uh, a hard thing to tell everybody. Yeah, I mean, you know, at this point, I'm out of the woods on that one. And so, you know, I'm more than happy to just sort of pay it forward. I mean, it, it was really, really, it was a very tough period that I brought entirely on myself and uh, it was totally avoidable. And, um, and so I guess, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and given the fact that, you know, I'm still alive um, and I I made my way out of the, uh, out of the crisis, um, the least I can do is, is uh, be honest about it and, and share in, in vivid detail because I, Hopefully it scares, it scares some entrepreneurs uh, in the, in the right direction. 
Yeah, absolutely. A uh, couple last questions. Uh, what's a favorite book that you could pass on to our listeners? You know, I keep coming back to this book. Uh, it's called High Output Management. Um, I will confess I'm maybe a little bit of like a business book junkie, but this book was written by Andy Grove, who was the first CEO of Intel, the Intel Corporation. Yep. And, and that's back when Intel was, you know, small business, you know, uh, not some big, huge, giant Fortune 50 company. And Andy Grove uh, just wrote this fantastic book, uh, basically taking all of his expertise in manufacturing and semiconductor manufacturing and talking about the way that your business and the way you manage your business is, is basically a factory and how you manage it, how you think about quality, how you think about defects, how you think about throughput. Uh, it's just an incredible book for managers and for leaders. Um, Andy Grove passed away a couple of years ago, but he was just an amazing uh, uh, leader and operator. There's no, you know, no BS in this book. There's no silly, you know, acronyms or anything like that. It's just a hard hitting book that you can open up and you don't have to read it, you know, front to back. Uh, and you can open it up and, 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 you know, sort of tune yourself up anytime you need to, but it's just outstanding. I've bought a bunch of them for my team and give it to all my managers. I, I swear by it. Cool. Awesome. Um, how do you like to give back? I've been doing a couple of things um, to give back. I mean, um, you know, the, 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 the biggest daily way that Axial gives back um, as a company um, is actually through a huge, huge amount of free resources on the topic of entrepreneurship. Um, and a huge amount of data uh, that we make available for free to the market. So awesome. a lot of people have told me over the years, you should take all of this data and all this content and all this expertise, and you should turn it into, you know, a, a class or something that you charge for, or it should be something that, you know, and we've just decided, you know what, in the end of the day, it, it can go further. It can reach more people. People all around the world can read this stuff if we don't put this stuff behind a form and charge people for it. So I think, yeah, I, I think one of the ways that I hope I've given back and we've given back is just to make a huge library of high quality content available for free to, to entrepreneurs and to business owners that are trying to learn how to grow their business through acquisition or trying to get ready for a successful exit. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, I personally um, have been um, a, a huge animal lover, actually, since I was a kid. Um, my mom was a, a huge animal person as well. And so I sort of got very close to animals, worked on a farm as a kid. So I'm just a huge, uh, so I've begun to do a bunch of um, work, uh, both donating time and money to a bunch of anti-poaching um, uh, efforts. Cool. Uh, which is obviously a long way from home if you're talking about anti-poaching in, um, you know, in Africa with the elephants, which have just been getting destroyed and slaughtered. But there's actually a bunch of uh, anti-poaching that, you know, um, needs to happen here in America. Yeah. Uh, either healthy hunting or better hunting, all of, it's, all of it's good. But, you know, some of the poaching that gets done is something that I've uh, tried to focus on. Right now, Todd, I mean, my whole company is trying to figure out how we can give back and how we can become just a better and more sensitive organization on these issues of race. Um, you know, we're, um, 
one of my colleagues and I are, we've committed to run 100 miles in the month of June. And for every mile that we run, we're donating $10 to um, an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, but we're really just trying to sort of figure out what is the what is the right way to give back and you know in in you know in a way that uh just reflects coronavirus what happened with george floyd uh there's a lot of a lot of things to process and a lot of opportunities to give back not just with money but but also with time so uh, i've done a few things in my past but you know certainly encouraging you know my whole team right now as well spending some time myself just trying to figure out what's the what's the immediate way that, you know, that we can give back? Um, what's the immediate way that we can carve out a half a day once a month and either protest peacefully or find a place to volunteer um, or, um, you know, just, just, just find ways to, to connect with what's going on in America and, and try and be a source of positivity and, and healing and tolerance. And um, so, um, yeah, muddling my muddling my way through that I, alongside I think everybody else. Yeah, there's a lot of needs out there right now, and and you know anything you can do to to give back and to try to make it uh, make your mark on on the world and make it a better place is uh, is powerful. So totally agree. It's just an endless an endless set of opportunities right now to help people that had their lives destroyed by coronavirus, that lost loved ones, you know, obviously everything that's going on in terms of racial injustice is now, you know, right alongside coronavirus as, you know, another American tragedy that needs, needs time and money and love and a lot of focus from a lot of talented people. So I hope to be part of that. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, Peter, I, we got to wrap up. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, for providing a ton of great content for us. Um, how can our listeners get in touch with you, reach, uh, reach you, and learn more about what you got going on? Uh, well, the front door to the company is on the internet. It's just www.axial.net. That's A-X-I-A-L dot N-E-T. And uh, like I said just a minute ago, there's so much free content and tools and tips and calculators and stuff like that that can help an entrepreneur get going, can help people look at this search fund investor model. So that's, um, that's one place. And then I'm, I'm an open book. You can find me on LinkedIn um, very easily if you want to reach out to me directly. Um, and I think on my LinkedIn page, I, I share my email address, but um, my email address is just peter at axial.net. So if anybody wants to reach out privately, um, to, you know, discuss, you know, something that they feel, you know, more comfortable talking to someone about as opposed to going online and filling out a form. That's fine too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Peter, again, I really appreciate you joining us and uh, tons of value you're able to add and, uh, and, uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thanks for having me, Todd. This has been great. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. But your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venture D 
VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com, and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also, look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out, and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.